At the very beginning of this presidential podcast, I started by asking Bob Woodward, the legendary Washington Post reporter, how it is that I should go about assessing each American president. And one thing he said was, It is a matter of ascertaining what the will of the president is. That is, figuring out what exactly it is he hopes and promises the American public that he'll accomplish during his time in the White House. To what extent do they succeed at or fail at working their will? Well, if we're looking at what these leaders said they wanted to do and then comparing that against whether they actually did it, by this assessment, we're about to learn that James K. Polk may be the most successful president we have ever had. I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post, and this is the 11th episode of Presidential. Shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. What your country can do for you. A date which will live in infamy. For this episode, we're going to take a deep dive into the story of James K. Polk with Amy Greenberg, an expert on Polk and a professor at Penn State University. Polk was president for one term from 1845 to 1849. He was born in North Carolina 50 years before that, in 1795. So I asked Amy to start here, at the beginning of his life. His family moved from North Carolina to Tennessee when he was fairly young, and they were part of a big migration of slave owners from North Carolina to Tennessee who were basically moving onto land that Indians um, had been kicked out of, and they were bringing slaves onto Indian land in order to grow crops. And Polk, I think the defining feature of his childhood was that he was really sickly. He could not compete with other kids his age in the kind of backwoods physical contests that were really important at that time. He couldn't run fast. He wasn't strong. What kind of illnesses are these? He developed um, bladder stones, um, which caused excruciating pain. So his father actually took him when he was a teenager, I think 15, to North Carolina to have experimental surgery to remove these bladder stones. And the surgery was a success in that um, as soon as he healed up, he was a completely new person. He was able to um, go to school. He had all this energy that he had never had before. And it was really sort of the start of his life. But the sad thing about the surgery is that um, it left him unable to father a child. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious um, in what way you think that being sick as a child shaped who he was, the type of interests he had, or ambitions, or character he developed? I think it made him a, an unusually serious young man, um, and, it, and it also caused him to become very, very intense and to sort of develop a strength of will that I don't think a lot of other people had at the time. So he realized in a very profound way what his limitations were, and just determined to succeed despite these limitations. So I think that you can see this kind of settling or intensity of will as a result of the illnesses 
playing out later in life um, when he faced problems or or difficulties, um, he just would power through them just through pure force of will. He was also an incredibly hard worker. And I I have to think that that emerged out of this um, sort of painful childhood. And the last thing that I would say about this, um, I, I feel pretty confident that his inability to compete as a child um, physically sort of left him with a, a complex where he wanted to prove to everybody that he was um, just as much of a man as anybody else was. And I think it caused him to become um, maybe unnaturally focused on war and, and sort of martial expressions of manhood uh, in that you can see, even though he's never really, he's never really served in the military, but even before he's president, he's such a, a gung-ho expansionist and so intent on proving to other countries that America really is um, in the right. All right, time for my classic question. Let's say I'm about to go out on a date with James K. Polk and I know nothing about him, know nothing of his personality. What am I in for? Okay, first of all, I would recommend that you not go on this date because I don't think it's going to be any fun. First of all, James, um, he doesn't drink. I don't know if you drink or not. He's, he's not going to drink. He has no sense of humor. So uh, you cannot expect any kind of fun, um, uplifting conversation to detract from the fact that you can't drink anything on your date. I, I don't imagine that the two of you um, are going to do anything that he would consider frivolous. So don't expect to go to the theater. Um, Don't imagine that the two of you are going to go listen to music. Uh, These are not really his kind of things. It is possible if you enjoy riding that that you and he might go out on a ride. You're definitely not going to go hiking or berry picking. Uh, I hope you like politics because that's what he's going to talk about all night. Where did the interest in politics come from? You know, his father was not particularly political. He, so basically, after he had his surgery, he went to um, basically what we would call sort of like a private boarding school, high school. And he immediately proved himself to be an excellent um, debater and really actually a crack student all around. He was, he was definitely the best student in his class. And then he went from that boarding school to the University of North Carolina, where, again, he was just an outstanding student and great debater. Um, and then he became a lawyer. And you know, I think a lot of uh, lawyers in his sort of position um, got involved in politics. And while he was acting as clerk for the Tennessee House of Representatives, he met a young woman named Sarah Childress. And um, rumor has it that she's the one who encouraged him to run for the legislature in Tennessee. And he did, and he won. And then she's the one who pushed him to become a congressman. And he ran for Congress and he won. So it's not totally obvious to me that his real interest in politics was um, firmly in place before he met the woman who became his wife. I had I had read that she said she wouldn't marry him unless he won a seat in the Tennessee state legislature. I, you know, knowing her as well as I feel like I do, I think she probably did did make it clear that she did not see her future as being married to just some um, local lawyer, that she she had a higher idea of what they were destined for. 
could you talk a little bit about his relationship with Andrew Jackson, how he comes to know Jackson, and then the role that Jackson plays in also helping his political rise? So Andrew Jackson is, you know, he's not just a important military figure of this time period, and he's not just the father of the antebellum Democratic Party. He's this incredibly important mentor and formative mentor for a whole generation of politicians who are coming of age in what was then the Southwest. And Polk was lucky enough to get to know him um, at an early point. And rumor has it, it was Jackson who encouraged Polk to court and marry Sarah Childress. What skills or leadership traits of Polk's get him to the presidency? One thing that I'm really impressed by is his ability to overcome sort of his personal limitations. And in the 1820s, if you wanted to get elected as a Democrat, you had to be a man of the people. You had to convince voters that you were one of them. And usually the way that you did that was sort of like Davy Crockett, being really funny, being fun and funny, achieving military prominence, uh, but, but above all else, just kind of being somebody that people like. People are voting for men who they feel like share their values and who are like them. They're not necessarily voting for someone who they think is better than them, who will do a good job in office because they're smarter than the electorate, but somebody who really seems like they, they feel their pain or they understand where they're coming from. And, and Polk is really just not like that. He, he's not fun. He's not funny. Uh, but he manages to convince people that he is. And he makes this concerted effort to learn to speak in a folksy manner and um, interact with the public to shake hands for hours with people, even though he doesn't really, he's not what you would call a people person. He doesn't necessarily like people. He practices jokes and then delivers them and does a good enough job that he manages to convince people that he's really a fine fellow, and that that would be a high term of praise in the time period. So one way that he rises to power, and this became really clear to me when I started looking at his early congressional campaigns, is he just campaigns harder than anybody else. He campaigns for Congress for three or four solid months, riding horseback uh, in order to meet as many people as possible in order to get to Congress. Um, And when he runs for the governorship, uh, which he does um, three times starting in 1839, he rides all over the state for four or five months. So he just works himself to pieces. Um, He's constantly getting sick. He doesn't sleep much. And he just crams more and more events into his schedule until I think he really wears down his opponent. Polk served seven terms as a U.S. congressman from 1825 to 1839, and he was Speaker of the House for the last four of those years. So that's the end of Andrew Jackson's presidency and the beginning of Martin Van Buren's. After he's in Congress, he serves one term as governor of Tennessee, but then loses the re-election. He runs another time after that for governor again and loses a second time. 
So it came as something of a shock when he ended up the Democratic Party's presidential nominee for the 1844 presidential election. In that election, he ends up eventually beating the Whigs candidate, Henry Clay, by an extremely narrow margin to take the White House. In a feat basically never before or after accomplished in presidential history, Polk achieves every single big item that he set out to do as president. I asked Amy how in the world he manages to do this. Is it his work ethic? Is it that he's flexible and using any means necessary to achieve his goals? I don't think that Polk has a flexible bone on his body. He's he's remarkably unflexible. But one thing that um, definitely helps him achieve his goals is um, he's not afraid to lie. And I've been trying to figure out if Polk is the first president who lies to members of his party. Um, I'm not sure, but I think he might be. And after he's elected, but before he takes office, he meets with members of his party who are on the fence as to whether or not to vote in favor of annexing Texas. There's been an attempt to annex Texas by the outgoing president, John Tyler, but a lot of senators don't want to vote in favor of the annexation bill. And Polk meets with them, and he promises them that if they vote in favor of the bill, he will uh, send people down to Texas. Um, Don't worry, we'll work out all of the issues that are keeping you from voting in favor of annexing Texas. I'm going to work all that out after you cast the vote. But he never has any intention in doing that. Uh, and in fact, he doesn't do it. So even before he actually enters office in March of 1845, there are people in his own party, serious, important politicians who write to each other and say, uh, you know, the president, the president lied to me. And this starts a pattern that you can see run through his entire term which is Polk being willing to tell people in his party things that he has no intention of doing. I think he's the first president who does that. He's obviously not the last, but a politician's reputation was everything in the very early republic. And there was nothing worse in the 1790s, in the first one or even two decades of the 19th century, as a politician than to be called a liar. Yet Polk lies. Does that trait come back to bite him? I don't really think so. I think it works out pretty well for him. Let's talk about some of these goals that Polk sets for himself as commander-in-chief. One of them is that he wants to finally pass a tariff that the North and South can both agree on. Yeah, the Walker Tariff's like a big unsung accomplishment of the Polk administration. Um, nobody, nobody understands or talks about tariffs. Um, and tariffs are basically taxes, and, and they're pretty boring. But he brought down um, the tax rates on certain imported items uh, into the United States uh, in order to basically helped the South, which was more interested in importing. And, and it sort of hurt the North, which could have used protective tariffs in order to build up their industry. But um, how did he pass the Walker Tariff? Well, it helped that he had a majority of Democrats in Congress. Um, in one case, John Quitman, who was a young congressman, he uh, told Quitman that if Quitman stayed in Congress until the vote on the Walker Tariff took place, he would give Quitman's uh, Louisiana regiment all these fancy new rifles. So uh, he stayed 
voted in favor of the tariff and then was rewarded with these totally awesome um, special smoothbore rifles. Well, another thing Polk achieves is gaining California for the United States, which at the time he came into office belonged to Mexico. So can you talk about how he does that? Okay, so first of all, he never publicly said, I'm going to take California. But people kind of knew that was what was coming. Uh, And the way that he took California was basically to provoke a war against Mexico. Polk sent half of the regular army, 4,000 men, under General Zachary Taylor down to the Rio Grande. Taylor and a lot of the officers basically know what Polk's doing, which is that Polk is sending U.S. troops into disputed territory that everybody except Texans claim is actually Mexican territory in order to start a war. And basically, this this works. Uh, it leads to an event called the Thornton Affair, where Mexican troops cross the Rio Grande River and kill some U.S. soldiers, allowing Polk to declare war against Mexico. The reason that we know that Polk was going to declare war against Mexico, whether or not this event happened, is that the day before he got news of the Thornton affair, he sat down with his cabinet and he said, I really think we should declare war against Mexico. Uh, Mexico refuses to sell us California. Um, They're being very intransigent about the southern border of Texas. Um, They've insulted us by rejecting one of our ministers. Everybody in the cabinet except one person says, well, sir, um, you can't actually declare war against a neighboring republic on the grounds of they've insulted us, they won't sell us their land, something has to happen. So, and then the next day they get news that this this event happened, that U.S. soldiers have been killed. And that allows Polk to go to Congress and say, American blood has been shed on American soil, and despite our best efforts to prevent war, uh, Mexico has started a war. So this is the genesis of how he ends up getting California. Pretty much everyone in Congress knows that Polk is lying, but but everybody except 14 people in Congress vote in favor of the war because they don't want to look unpatriotic. What do you think are some of the most interesting lessons to pull from this? So one of the big lessons that I learned from researching the U.S.-Mexico war is that a lot of people turned against this war and that their opposition to the war helped bring the war to a close. So... It may not feel like opposing a war is a patriotic thing to do, but it really can be in the best interest of the country if the war that the president's getting us into is not the right war. Oh, and I have another lesson, that lying works on some level, that if you're a president, uh, lying can get you what you want in the short term. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, yeah, we're going we're gonna to beat Mexico, no, no question about that. Um, But it's going to be like the man who swallows poison. And so the United States fights the 16-month war, and we come out with the entire western portion of the country. So it looks like a huge success. And in, in many ways, it is a huge success. But it's that territory that leads directly to the Civil War, because nobody can figure out what the status of slavery should be in this tremendous session of land that we just got from Mexico And the South and the North, their inability to agree whether or not this land should be open to slavery or whether it should be free territory is what ultimately leads the United States to split apart. 
What were some of his wife Sarah's main influences on him while he's in office? What do you find most interesting about her role as an advisor to him while he's president? I think she's such a fascinating character. She's this incredibly political creature in a time period when women are not supposed to be involved in politics. So 1848, the first feminists meet together at Seneca Falls and issue this Declaration of the Rights of Women. And this is kind of where we think women in politics starts from, is women looking to get the vote. But at the same time that that's going on, you have women, including Sarah Polk, and maybe most especially Sarah Polk, who are really, really active in national politics as advisors to their husbands. So some of the things I find fascinating about Sarah's role in the White House is that when they first move into the White House, they set up an office um, where they can work together. Um, and, and one thing that James puts her in charge of is vetting the news for him. She highlights the stories that she thinks he should read and decides what information gets to him that way. So certainly later in his presidency, when there's a lot of uh, dissent against the war, she is protecting him from that news by not giving him those particular articles. So that's one thing that she does. She um, institutes three times a week uh, parties in the house or dinners. But sometimes James is just too busy to come to these dinners, so she just will run them herself. And these are really explicitly political And politicians know exactly what's going on. In fact, a number of politicians say that they would rather talk about politics with Sarah than with James because James is so secretive. He has no sense of humor, whereas Sarah is open and funny. Sarah's also really good at um, dealing with the media. Um, She convinces everybody that she's this incredibly frugal, down-to-earth person Um, by refusing to spend a lot of money remodeling the White House. She was very, very simple jewelry. Uh, But at the same time, she actually spends like a ridiculous amount of money on her clothing. Um, She's also, and this is not a put on, this is very much real. She's she's really, really religious. um, And she doesn't allow any dancing in the White House. She doesn't go watch horse races. A lot of people have said that Um, She doesn't allow any alcohol in the White House at all. But in fact, she and James spend tremendous amounts of money on wine for these dinners. So it's it's like the public knows that she's political, but they accept her politics because it seems part of her selfless persona um, in helping her husband in every way possible. This was a bit of a first, right? Because there are a number of presidents before Polk who have either been widows or... um, Tyler's first wife dies while he's president, right? It seems like it's been a while since there's been any sort of like steady female figure in the White House. Oh, that's absolutely, absolutely the case. I also think this is one of the reasons why her activism in the White House has been overlooked is that she falls into this kind of dead space between Dolly Madison and maybe Mary Todd Lincoln, who, you know, has a a negative reputation in many ways, but she's, she's seen as a real person. Thank you. 
if we return to Bob Woodward's statement that one way to evaluate a presidency is to look at what the leader wanted to achieve at the outset and then ask, did he actually manage to do it? Well, by that calculation, James Polk might truly be our most effective president ever. Yeah, in terms of Polk, sure, he's incredibly effective, uh, but but he his positions, I think, are wrong. Most of the positions are wrong. So I, I don't think that just because he achieves the things he sets out to do that we would say he's a great president. When you're evaluating whether or not a president is great, you really have to think about um, how well that president's goals or beliefs uh, align with the goals and beliefs that you have doing the evaluating. James Polk leaves office in 1849, and he writes in his diary that he's exceedingly relieved. By the time the war comes to an end, Polk has been widely demonized by people um, as, as a terrible person, as, as a killer of, of innocent Mexicans, um, as a supporter of slavery. Uh, his actions have greatly increased sectional animosity. He's definitely not a beloved figure when he leaves office. The thing that's so sad about this is that Polk really worked himself pretty much to death. He's so weak uh, from not sleeping and from working nonstop that he only lives a couple of months after he leaves he leaves office. He catches probably cholera um, and he's so he's so weakened he dies. Kind of a, it's kind of a sad end. It's also sad for Polk because he leaves office and the next president is a Whig. It's it's General Zachary Taylor. So Polk, when he took a pledge to only serve one term, his reasoning was that he could get the whole party behind him and they would support his goals because, and that he could do things without having to worry about being reelected. But what he finds instead is that his unwillingness to serve a second term leads to a lot of infighting among Democrats. Uh, it splits the party and then he has to see this this awful realization, which is that him serving only one term leads to a war hero from the very war that he started getting elected. And then that, that hero is, in fact, um, a member of the opposition party. So I guess that's another way you could evaluate the success of a president is, is how good they are at leaving the country in a position where his policies are continued after he leaves. And this is definitely not what happens to Polk. What do you think about Polk's legacy today? I mean, I would venture to say that most people don't really know anything about Polk. I mean, he's he's one of the presidents probably lower on the list um, in terms of just kind of our collective contemporary memory. Despite all of the land that the United States gained from the U.S.-Mexico War, it's not a war that anyone in the United States was very interested in remembering even immediately after it was over. The U.S.-Mexico War was the first war that we fought against a neighboring republic that was just based on greed. It was really the U.S.'s first major war that wasn't wasn't grounded in principle. So it's just, it's like one of those bad wars that people don't want to remember or talk about. In Mexico, everybody knows about the U.S.-Mexico War. I wouldn't be surprised if People in Mexico know more about James K. Polk than people in the United States do. Is it fitting that nobody really remembers him? Yeah, I think it is. Sarah lives 50 years after Polk dies, and she 
spends the last 30 years of her life trying to raise awareness of how great James K. Polk was, and it's just a total failure. It's a total failure. For years and years and years, there's hardly anything that seems to budge his legacy. Until the band They Might Be Giants comes along, and musician John Linnell composes the song James K. Polk. Judging by all the requests from our podcast audience, this song has probably done more than Polk's wife Sarah could ever do to boost his name recognition. We thought it would be fun to make up a song that was as impersonal as possible, that was just (laughs) filled with facts that people generally kind of weren't interested in but would be sort of force-fed. In 1844, the Democrats were split. The three nominees for the presidential candidate. I think some people assumed that we were, that They Might Be Giants was kind of advocating for Polk, you know. And so, I mean, unfortunately, it's created this situation where I kind of feel like when we're performing it, I have to say something about how I don't, actually really like this guy uh-huh. you know personally have a, a interest in presidential history? Um, well, I will tell you that I, I now own the complete set of presidential Pez dispensers. Do you think there's any chance that you will do another presidential song in the future? Why not? We're pretty free this year, so it, it, I suppose, you know, it's possible we could we could we could make another another presidential theme for you. <laughs> All right, people, let's try to make this happen. You can find they might be giants on Twitter at tmbg. I'm just saying that we might have a new president song to play later in the series if they hear from all of you about how much you want it. On next week's podcast, it's time for Zachary Taylor, the U.S. general in the Mexican War, who's a Whig, the opposite party from Polk, and who takes over the presidency after him. Very many thanks this week to our guests Amy Greenberg of Penn State and John Linnell of They Might Be Giants. The original music for the podcast is by Dave Wessner, and production help for this episode is by Diana Douglas. As always, you can follow us during the week on Instagram and Twitter at presidential underscore WP. And you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes.com slash presidential to get all our new episodes automatically as soon as they go live. So I've been working on the Polks now, I'd say like for 10 years, and they are so remarkably uninteresting as people you know, I'm serious. Like you read, I've read all of James K. Polk's letters and all of his diary entries, and he's just, he's never funny. I mean, he's never funny. 
it's just so unrelenting. And his wife, I mean, she's she's almost as bad. They're so they're so convinced that they're right and that God's on their side. What? Why are you studying Polk, Ben? <laughs> I I don't know. Maybe I'm a masochist. To get back to your date question, it's like, oh no, I can think of many, many presidents I would rather set you up on a date with. For Martin Van Buren, a former president and an abolitionist. James Buchanan, a moderate. Louis Cass, a general and expansionist. Hi there, Lillian again. If you're enjoying Presidential, check out another podcast I made right afterward called Constitutional. It's a deep dive into the story of our country's founding document. From abolition and civil rights to suffragists and the fight for the 19th Amendment. Women should have the vote because it's unjust, shameful, and cowardly for men to deprive women of that they demand for themselves. It explores the revolutionary figures who advanced our understanding of free speech, religious freedom, the right to bear arms, immigration, Native American rights. For the first time in the 103-year history of the United States, a federal judge had declared 
that an Indian, from that point forward, would have to be regarded as a person. And it takes you back in time to the original battle of ideas at the Constitutional Convention. There was nothing dry or dusty about it. This is the most radical body of democratic deliberation ever assembled. These struggles, from 1787 all the way up to today, constitute the story of America. You can listen to The Constitutional Podcast at WashingtonPost.com slash constitutional, or you can find it on whatever your favorite podcast platform is.